Well, let's look at this um, great chapter that we read earlier from Romans, chapter 5. And I wanted to pick out particularly verses 9 and 10. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. You notice that Paul is referring to what has happened and what is going to happen. You may have heard the story about the Salvation Army lady and the bishop who were traveling by train, sitting opposite one another, and the Salvation Army lady was desperate to ask the bishop a question, and eventually she plucked up courage and said, Sir, are you saved? And he said, Madam, do you mean have I been saved? Am I being saved or will I be saved? The answer to all three questions is yes, he was a converted bishop. We can be certain of the final outcome. We can be sure and certain of the day of judgment. That really is what Paul wants to impress upon these early Roman Christians. Romans 5 to 8 are some of the sublimest passages in the whole of the scriptures. And the argument of Romans 5 to 8 is extremely important for us to grasp. It's a comfort and a strength to us in our lives. And it's a challenge to us if we yet are outside of the kingdom of God. We do, if we are Christians, face many trials in life. Paul refers to them here, many and varied. He calls them tribulations. And in chapter 8, he speaks about all those things that cannot separate us from the love of God, and he lists a whole series of possibilities. And in between chapter 5 and the end of chapter 8, he talks about sin which remains in the Christian, though forgiven, and the law, which can be a problem and a difficulty. But despite the presence of sin continuing, and despite the law of God and its demands persisting, we can nevertheless be sure of our ultimate salvation. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he begins this section. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the way he ends the section. And in between this powerful moving argument what he's really saying is that if you're a Christian, you have been justified. You have been reconciled to God. And that being the case, 
There's no question about the ultimate, the final verdict, the judgment. Much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now this certainty of the ultimate judgment, of the final stage of our salvation, is grounded on God's love. That's what Paul says in verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So the love of God guarantees that we will be ultimately saved. He hasn't loved us to cease loving us. And the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ is what guarantees that beyond any question. What he has done and what he will do. They're fixed, they're certain, they're immovable. So the argument is very important for us. It's important for our well-being, it's important for our holiness, it's important for our motivation and our service of the Lord. What has been accomplished for you if you're a Christian? You've been justified. You've been reconciled to God. What will be accomplished for you in the future? You shall be saved from wrath through him. You will be saved by his life. It's all found in that little word or that little phrase, much more. Paul repeats it in this great chapter. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Since he has justified us by his blood, since he has reconciled us by his death, then he will most certainly save us from future wrath through Christ, and we shall be saved by his life. We can be absolutely certain then of full and final salvation, and we need to be assured of that. Sin remains. The law has to be upheld. We have an enemy. The devil will remind us of our past sins. What did you do? How did you live? What were you like? Is God going to forgive you for those sins and for the sin that created and caused them? What about your present weakness? Your inability? Sometimes you totter around. You're full of foreboding and fear and doubt and anxiety. Might you be rejected at the end? When after life is over and you're before the judgment seat of Christ, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Will the law of God condemn you then? Will the wrath of God be poured out upon you then? How are you to answer questions like that? When the enemy comes and suggests them to us, 
We really need to know how to reply. And the first thing we need to know is that God has done something incredibly wonderful for us. Justified by his blood. You'll notice that. Paul also speaks here about being justified by his grace. He speaks about being justified by faith. But here he says we are justified by his blood. So the source of our justification is the love of God. The means by which we receive it is faith. But what procures it? What guarantees it to us? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you remember how the Apostle John says this? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Not some. His death, his sacrifice. It's the means by which we are justified, and it's through his blood. It's important, isn't it, to grasp that. When I was a student, occasionally I would visit Westminster Chapel in London when Dr. Lloyd-Jones was the pastor there. He never particularly liked Sankey hymns. But on one occasion when he was preaching with power from above, he suddenly stopped. Would you be free, he said, from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. I remember finding it very difficult to keep my seat. Power, power, wonder-working power. Where? In the blood of Christ. How precious is the blood of Christ to you? The death of Christ for you? Is that where all your hopes are this morning? The power to justify us. It's not in faith. We receive justification by faith. It's not even in the rebirth, though that happens at the same time. It's through the blood of Christ. Paul is emphatic. We are justified by his blood. And the righteousness of Christ, which we receive by faith, is the righteousness that comes to us through the death of Christ on the cross. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. So we're not justified by regeneration. We are not justified by sanctification. True though those wonderful realities are, it's by the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Thomas Chalmers once said, If God did not justify the ungodly, where would I be? So sin has been judged. Fully, finally. All our sins were laid on Jesus. The holy, righteous anger of God was poured out upon his beloved Son. He took our place. The final verdict is settled. Jesus paid it all. What John Wesley called full salvation now. 
So there's no need of penance or confession to a priest or attendance at the Mass. There's no such place as purgatory. All our sins have been purged. There's no need to go to saints to pray for us. It's all been done having been justified. You cannot be more justified than you are. The wrath of God poured out upon his beloved Son on the cross secures our everlasting blessedness. So there's no wrath left for us. With one enormous draught of love, wrote Spurgeon, with one enormous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. We've been justified. That's an act of God for sinners. It declares it to be so, and if he declares it to be so, it is so. And, says Paul, we have been reconciled by his death. We were enemies. But a wonderful change has taken place in our relationship with God and his relationship with us. And the change occurred, first of all, in his relationship with us. He was reconciled. Through the death of his son, God was reconciled to us who were enemies. Do you remember how Paul lyrically speaks about this in his second letter to the Corinthian church? This was the very lifeblood of the apostles living and dying. It was everything to him. He wrote like this. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, not imputing their trespasses to them. That's how it happened. God removed the enmity between himself and us. He made peace. So reconciliation has taken place. The judge has become your father if you're a Christian. Your whole relationship with God has changed from the divine perspective. He loved you and he loves you. The war is over. He's been reconciled. Peace has been made. Wrath is removed. You're reconciled to God. You're his child. He's your father. On Father's Day, let's remember the father. The one who reconciled himself to us in the death of his son. In the death of his son, you'll notice. And we are reconciled to him because the peace that was made has been preached to us, brought to us, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, so that we who are enemies have now become friends of God. We who are hostile now love him. Everything's changed. A change in our status, a change in our attitude. This is assurance. This is where assurance lies. This is where we must come every day of our lives. And if the Lord hasn't brought you here to this place 
then this is where you must stop. You must throw away all your good works, so-called. You must throw away all your bad works. And you must look to the work of Christ, who died, whose blood was shed for you. That's where salvation begins. That's where assurance is found. So it's not just by the coming of Christ into the world that we are assured. It's not even by his example or his teaching, wonderful though that is. It's by his death. There is only one death that can remit sin, that can reconcile sinners to God, that can justify those who are ungodly. Only one death. The death of the sinless sin-bearer, Jesus Christ. If there had been any other way, God would have found it. The only way to appease his wrath and to forgive sin was through the substitutionary death of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven. And let us in. God has justified us. God has reconciled us to himself in the blood, in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that where you are this morning? Are you standing before the cross of Christ, now vacant, but the place where your forgiveness was assured, the place where God's wrath was poured out? Are you there before the cross this morning? Jesus, keep me near, near the cross. That's where we need to stand every day of our lives to rest in the finished, absolute, final work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that being so, much more, much more, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Much more, we shall be saved by his life. His life. Jesus lives. The one who died lives. Gloriously. He triumphed over death. He broke its shackles. From within, he shattered its power. The most difficult thing was to deal with our sin, was to propitiate God's wrath. But because our Lord Jesus Christ has done that, and is now alive, he can do everything else. Everything follows on. We shall be. We shall be, says Paul. So you can face the future with confidence. He is alive, and every Christian has been raised to life in Christ. He is our life. We sang about that earlier on. He is the one in whom we live. He is the one who lives in us. We're no longer outside looking on, looking in. As Bunyan did when he could hear those people talking behind the wall. And he would love to have joined them, but he couldn't find a way through the wall to join them, these Christians, until he found the door. And Jesus is the door. And he found his way in to join believers in the kingdom of God. Jesus is our head, we are his body. He is the vine, we are the branches. So we live in him. Resurrection life. If you ever have the opportunity to read the metaphysical poems of George Herbert, the English 
poet, read his poem on Easter Day. It's a wonderful little piece, just three stanzas. And in the last stanza, he says this, Can there be any day but this? Easter Day. Then he talks about the 300 or so days in the year. We count 300, he says, but we miss. There is but one and that forever. That's Resurrection Day. No other day like it. One day beyond all comparison. One day glorious in its impact and its power. There is but one and that forever. Jesus lives and we shall live. We shall not die. We shall live. When the wife of Jonathan Edwards heard the news that he had died, she wrote to her daughter, grieving desperately, but she wrote to her daughter, but our God lives. He lives. This morning, if you're a Christian, you're in the hands of a living Savior. He is not dead. You will not die. You can be sure you're justified in him. You can be sure you're reconciled in him. You can be sure at the cross his work has been accepted. Nothing more needs to be done. There's no condemnation, no separation. You're not in the law court. You're in the family. And you cannot die. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day, a resurrection day, when the bodies will be changed, made like unto his glorious body, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. You can now live every day to please your Father. You can live a life of gratitude for grace. You can be motivated to die to yourself and your self-centeredness and live for God and his glory. Tis to my Savior I would live, for him who for my ransom died, nor could untainted Eden give such bliss as blossoms at his side. And there's help for us every day. You have an advocate with the Father. And you have an advocate within. The Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father is your intercessor. The Holy Spirit has been given to you to guide you through life. And even when we find it hard to pray, Jesus is our intercessor. We are not alone. There are always two of us. The devil cannot hold us or touch us. He can accuse us, he can shout at us, but he has no argument to stick. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. That's it. In a moment or two, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. The preached word and the visible word of the sacrament are God's means of grace to us. And at the Lord's table, we shall look back to that great event, that great moment when our Lord Jesus Christ died for us. 
we should look up to the holy, righteous, powerful, almighty God. That means we will look in and see something of our sinfulness. But then we look out to that great sacrifice and that final finished work. We look around and we see our brothers and sisters redeemed by the same blood. And we look on, we look ahead to the coming of our Lord Jesus and we do this until he comes. If you're a Christian, join us around the table. If you're not, why not turn to him this morning? Why not abandon yourself? Why not look out from that mirror of self-righteousness, that mirror of introspection and introversion? Why not look out through the window to the one who made an end of all our sin? Oh, praise God, praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his finished work.